chapter 34. Now we come to Dinah. Now Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she bore to Jacob, went to meet the young women of the land. Now automatically, this is really bad. Because she is a woman who wants to go out and meet the women of the land. Who are the people of the land? The Canaanites. That God and Abraham and Isaac have all strictly forbidden you having any kind of relations with. And Canaanite women are really bad. They are pretty much all sexual seducers. Every time you see these women showing up in the Bible, they're intentionally sexually seducing people into their death. Dinah is the, the most famous example of this. And so these women um, are just not good. This is, and then Dinah, is she going with anybody? How did Jacob fare as a man away from his family protecting his civil rights with his own family? Not good. Now, Dinah, as a woman with no man in her life, is going out into a Canaanite culture that God is going to destroy for their sins and think that she's going to fare well. This is like my high school girls going into the back alleys of New York at 3 a.m. in the morning and thinking that everything's going to be okay. It's not working out for you. So immediately you're already thinking, Dinah is not a godly woman. Why is she seeking entertainment and companionship outside the covenant people of God? Why is she seeking to go to New York in the back alley at 3 a.m., so to speak? And so why she's there in this Hivite city, a Hivite is a subgroup of the Canaanites, Shechem, the son of Hamor, and Hamor is the ruler of this city, rapes her. But after he rapes her, he begins to speak tenderly to her and woo her. And he's hoping to gain her affection, which is kind of the, that's not the right order, ding dong. (laughs) So there is a sense that he does want to be with her. It wasn't just a one night stand for him. But at the same time, he began the relationship with a violation. And so he rapes her, which in some ways it is, it's never the woman's fault that that ever happens to her. But at the same time, she put herself in a very dangerous location without any kind of a protection. And this is what the Canaanites do. And it should have never. It's like, were you not paying attention to the news? This is what happens when you hang out with people like that. And so he rapes her. He became very attached to Diane. Now notice in one sense, he speaks tenderly and affectionate to her. But then he goes as father and says, go, get the woman, the girl for me. And he actually uses a diminutive um, word for like little girl. And so this is a very dysfunctional emotional connection that he has with her. And so he demands his father. Now, automatically you're seeing that this father is that really wealthy, rich, politically powerful person who has let his son do whatever he wants and will do anything to get his son whatever he wants and is never disciplined. As you listen to this negotiation, you realize this kid gets whatever he wants. Whatever he wants. And so the father goes down to the brothers and when says when Jacob learned about this, he did nothing. There's no anger. There's no action. 
He's just passive. And the question is why? Because she's the daughter of Leah. I mean, if he was willing to put her in the front camp to die first, then why would he care about a rape? But the brothers are furious because they're full-blooded brothers with her. And they become furious. And as Hamor begins to make negotiations for Dinah's hand, they do the negotiation. Now, as we saw Laban, the brother of Rebekah, doing negotiations and the marriage to Isaac and not Bethuel the father, we see the same thing. Remember, this is not uncommon. The brothers, most of the brothers are in their 40s by now. Okay, so these are older men who Jacob's probably beginning to pass off some of the headship, and it's not uncommon for the other brothers to make negotiations. And the older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, are the full-blooded brothers of Dinah. So we're told that they begin to make negotiations, and they say, sure, you can marry her. But then we're told, but they were acting deceptively because they want revenge. So they negotiate, and Hamor says, whatever you want, whatever the price is, Neiman. I don't care what the price is, I'll do it. Which means he really wants to please his son. And the brothers say, our God has commanded that everybody who becomes a part of our tribe has to be circumcised. We are not allowed to be circumcised at anybody. Now, Haman's making this a political deal, like, hey, not only can we have these two marry each other, we'll all intermarry with each other, and we'll all just become one people, and you'll have all these freedoms. And they're like, no, the only way we can do that is if we're all circumcised. Now they know that that means that they're going to be physically incapacitated in great pain for a few days as grown men, and that's a chance to attack. And so Haman agrees and you see his power and influence that he goes back to the city and convinces everybody to do it. So this shows you how much he's willing to do for his son and how much everybody else is willing to do for his son, which the question would be why, but that's not the point of the story. Then we learn that he had not returned Dinah to the brothers. And now you kind of gain a little sympathy for the brothers because they probably feel backed in the corner. They're holding Dinah hostage. She, they should have given Dinah back and then negotiated the marriage and then Dinah would be given over. But instead, Shechem still has Dinah in the city, which means if they don't agree to the, any kind of a deal that favors Shechem, then they could probably kill Dinah. So there's a sense that you see their desperation as they're trying to negotiate, that they're under the gun, literally, and they have no leverage whatsoever. So in some ways, you gain sympathy for their deception because they feel desperate. But in other ways, they should be trusting in God. But in other ways, their father has never modeled that. And so in some ways, you say, well, what do you expect from these kind of people? They're doing the best that they can with what they've been given. Now, they go in three days later when they're all incapacitated. They go out. Now, the penalty for rape is death. But the two brothers, not Reuben, because we're going to learn that he doesn't have much of a spinal cord in the later stories, but the other two brothers, Simeon and Levi, the second and third, they go in with their servants, and they slaughter Shechem, 
Hamor, and then every male in the city. And then they take all the women and all the children, all the animals, and they make them their slaves. Now you see the systematic nature of it. They target first Shechem, then Hamor. And you think of that sense, in some ways they're justified. The law would probably back them on that. As a kinsman redeemer who has a responsibility to enact justice, where there is no court system or law in this territory, they could be justified. But then they show their vengeance and anger and wrath and lack of godliness by attacking the people who weren't even guilty. Now granted, they're probably guilty of something if they're part of this city. But then they slaughter every male, and then they take women and children, and they enslave them, which is forbidden by the Deuteronomic law that will come later. This is one of the reasons why God said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a nail for a nail. God wasn't saying, go out and get vengeance and take their eye if they took yours. And the ancient culture, justice was, you kill my cousin, I'm going to kill your entire family. That was justice. So by God saying an eye for an eye, he's saying, you punish the person who committed the crime in proportion to the crime that they committed, and then you stop. And that's what that metaphor meant. It did not give you permission to take their eye if they took it. It just meant the punishment can't go beyond what they did, and it can't go beyond outside them and into other people's lives. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, you have to understand how evil this is. What did they do to deceive? How did they get these people incapacitated? What did they use to deceive them? Circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant. God said, the covenant is about me blessing you so that you can be a blessing to the world. And they took the sign of that covenant and use it to deceive the people so they can massacre them. This would be like you going out, holding the cross up and a track, and going through your neighborhood and evangelizing to people, and inviting them to your church and saying, be a part of our covenant community. Join Christianity. Come to Christ. And you get these people into the church, and you lock the doors, and you kill them all. It's the same equivalent is the same equivalent, because what the new covenant through Christ is for us is what the Abrahamic covenant is for them as Israel. And this shows you where the sons are spiritually, that they're willing to use the sign of God's blessing to the entire world to massacre the world. Only two generations later after Abraham. So what is the fruit of God's blessings. He has multiplied the children. He has multiplied the flocks of Jacob. He has protected them, and he's blessed them. But what is the fruit of Jacob's fatherhood? A daughter who rather hang out with these kind of people, sons who use the sign of the covenant to kill and murder people, and a father who doesn't even bat an eye. And yet God is going to bless them. And God is going to use them because we're all Jacob and we're all Dinah and we're all these brothers. Maybe not in action, but somewhere in your heart, there's something that you feel and think that is just like this. Because God redeems us despite ourselves and he uses us to redeem other people. 
because that's how great he is. Not because we deserve it, but because he wants to do something in us. Now, when Jacob finds out about it, now knows he gets angry. But knows what he says. What have you done? You've made me a stench in the nose and the eyes of the world around us. They're going to attack us now. Is he angry that they've gone out and killed people for the sake of that unrighteousness? He's angry that he now has a bad reputation and the people around him who are greater than him will now attack them and he's all alone now. If you thought we were alone before, now we're really alone. And he's angry. He's more angry at feeling like there's no one who, that his safety has been taken away than at the rape of his daughter and the massacre of his sons. Meaning, does he really see himself as Israel? And the story ends with the son saying, should we have treated our daughter like a whore? And the implication is, like you. That's the family of Jacob. In this one story, you now see what Jacob's relationship with his wives are like, how he treats his sons, what his sons think about him, and how Jacob sees himself in comparison to everybody else. Not as a ministry of light, but as a hunker down, surround yourself with the wagons, and protect yourself. And only one time so far has Jacob prayed to God. And once God protected him, and he saw that Esau has forgiven him, then he goes back to his ways. But now that he's lost that protection again, and everybody he fears, whether they really are or not, are going to come against him, will he turn to God? If you think that your life and your family is bad, (laughs) it could be worse. But here's the other thing. God is going to redeem this family. And he is going to change them. Because in the Jacob story, we're going to be introduced to the absolute dysfunctional nature of this family that is so blinded to who God is living in spiritual darkness. But in the Joseph story, we're going to see that family change as God works in their life. And not just Joseph, Reuben, Judah, Jacob. And if one thing should encourage you is if that God can take a family like this and pursue them and redeem them and use them as redemption in other people's lives, then how much more can he use you through the cross and the Holy Spirit? And that's the point here. This is where we see ourselves in this story. We need to see ourselves as these kind of sinners. Maybe not totally in actions all the time because we're really good at But in our hearts, we are this family. And we may not be what we ought to be, but we're not what we used to be. And it's only by the grace of God. And God is doing the same thing. And it should create a passion. And all those people, look, there's no way I'm going to let my daughters hang out with this kind of family. But in a certain sense, I have the Holy Spirit, and I've been called to be a blessing to the world. And I need to go into these people's lives, not in a judgmental, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're like that. I can't believe you do those kind of movies or that you watch those kind of movies. 
but in I have a heart for you to be redeemed and to be used by God to redeem other people because the God that viewed me this way and pursued me also lives in me. Now I do it as Christ commanded me to, wise as ge- to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. I don't just blindly walk into the world. But do we sit there and not see God at work in our lives? And do we sit there and condemn more people? Or are we scared to go near them because they're so evil and dark? Or do we recognize that the same darkness is in us and God has been redeeming us and he's given us a great commission to be a blessing to the world and we should go to them too? With great wisdom and great accountability, but at the same time go to them. This is the mission of God. And you don't have to wait till Christ to come. It's already here in the Abrahamic covenant. It's already here in Genesis, the book of beginnings. This is what we've been called to. This is what God can do with us, and this is what God can do with us in the lives of other people.